Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is... Brenda from MasterTalk. So, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here, Santiago. So, my name is Brendan. I'm the founder of MasterTalk's YouTube channel I started to help the world. Master of the Art of Communication, Public Speaking, and how I got started was when I was in business school. I used to do these things called case competitions. So think of it like, it's like professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys mm. my age were you know, playing football or rugby or some <laughs> other sport or watching the sport. So you can right. tell from looking at me, I'm clearly not equipped for any of those things. So what I did instead is I watched other people present mm. and I did that competitively. So I presented over 500 times in university, coached dozens of people. And then after I got a job in corporate America, or I guess in my case, Canada, so I'm based in Montreal. But then after mm. I started working, I just asked myself a fundamental question. What do I want my legacy to be? How do I make a difference in the world? That was when the idea for MasterTalk came to be because I've realized a lot of the content on public speaking on the internet and more specifically on the platform was terrible. So I started making mm. videos in my mother's basement. One thing led to another. And here we are today. Okay. So I guess out of all of the nerdy things you could have been nerdy about, why public speaking and not sports like you mentioned? Yeah, you know, you know, it's fascinating. This idea that like sports is like awesome. I, I always find that <laughs> interesting. Like it's like a ball with like air in it and then people bounce it around and stuff. But one entertainment, thing I want, man. Yeah, it's entertainment. <laughs> one thing I want to point out is I'm a huge fan of sports mindset. So I've studied hmm. like the last dances documentary, which is for those who don't know, it's this documentary on Netflix that talks about Michael Jordan's journey as a basketball player. Super fascinating. Same thing with Kobe, like Kobe Bryant. I, I, I like to watch the mindset, like the reason why they are and why they do what they do, but I don't watch any of the sports games for sure. <laughs> so, so why did I get nerdy about the mindset side or more specifically communication? So the way that I think about life is very simple. I think passions are very useless. Like, I think they're general, they're non-specific. We can be passionate about a lot of things about life. You know, like our dogs, our cats, or our parents, <laughs> or, you know, our podcasts, what we do. And, and that cripples a lot of people because everyone or a lot of influencers fool us into believing that we need to find a passion, find a purpose. And the issue with that, as you probably know, is most of us don't find one or we don't know how to find one. So we get confused, we get sad because we don't have anything that fulfills us and then we get mm. pretty depressed. But <laughs> what I what I really want to add here and how, how this ended up turning into what it is, is this idea of making a decision. So when I was 12 and I asked myself a better question, which is what does the world need you to do most right now and why? The answer at the time, it's not starting a YouTube channel, I didn't want to be able to, I thought that was for rich kids. That wasn't for me. Like I was this 12, guy, 12 year old kid with a mom working at a factory and a dad working at a factory. It wasn't like, that wasn't the thing. Right? It was a nice factory. It was we're in Canada. It's not too bad, but still, <laughs> right? So, you know, they were both making minimum wage. So I kind of just said, okay, what do I need to do now? I need to get a good job after I graduate university. I need to get an education. So I chose to be an accountant. I never changed my mind for seven, eight years. I got my first internship in accounting. Then I said, what does the world need me to do most right now? And I said, oh, these competitions are interesting. There's this job called management consulting. It's kind of like being a banker on Wall Street, but more fun and less uh, depressing, <laughs> I guess. And But it's super interesting. You get to solve problems, travel around the world. It's a lot of hours of work, but it's super fun. So I said, what's the best way to get into consulting? And doing these competitions was the answer. So I primarily joined just to get a job. Because a lot of people hmm. who do these comps uh, or a lot of these programs go on to, to work at these big companies and go on to become senior executives in their 30s, essentially. So a lot of my friends work on Wall Street or work on as uh, like uh, management consultants or work in nonprofits after they kind of uh, do that for two years. But what I didn't expect to happen is I got obsessed with them. <laughs> I just fell in love with these case competitions. I was like, how do we win this thing? In the same way, like I, I, the way I describe myself, I'm like the Michael Jordan no one cares about. So like, you know, like Michael is like, oh, basketball. No one cares about presentation. But I was obsessed. Like I would coach the teams, yell at students and go crazy. And then I just found an obsession with it. And it just turned out after I graduated uh, Santiago that I ended up being the youngest speech coach in the world without even realizing it. 
So that's what led <laughs> to master talk. But the point I want to drive here with this whole spiel is I was never passionate about public speaking. It was, I made the decision to get a job in accounting. I made a decision to get a job at IBM. And then those decisions, if I never made them, never would even led to what my ultimate passion and purpose ended up becoming, which was master talk. But if I never did that before, I wouldn't have the expertise to even coach anyone or share YouTube videos on the subject. But the, re the reason I think this is, a, is important to notice is because most people don't make a freaking decision. So they don't get to what they actually need to be doing in life because they just sit there and hope for a passion and like their cat is going to tell them what to do with their life or something. Sure. <laughs> um, so is there, I guess, like, what does, I guess, management consulting mean? <laughs> Definitely a good question. It's super vague and... It's supposed I, to be. Don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key, because I didn't want to bore people. What it is, essentially, is a business gives you a problem. So let's say a, a company that does this really well. So the, one of the top consulting firms in the world. It's a company called McKinsey and Company. And not many people would know this, but the idea with behind McKinsey, what they do, is they're kind of the people you don't see in the background who are advising presidents, CEOs of companies on what to do with their company that nobody sees because they never take credit for any of their work. They just get paid a lot of money to give the advice. So not many people know this, but McKinsey is actually the company that invented the barcode. So then Kmart and then they kind of replicated what McKinsey did as a study. But they're basically in the background doing all these things. So they're basically like the whisperer, the CEO whisperer. They tell CEOs what to do. So what CEOs do is that, and a lot of those people did work at McKinsey at the beginning. They end up becoming CEOs leader in life. So what happens essentially is they bring a team from these consultants that come in and they tell them their problem. They say, you know, my sales are down. 200%. This happened. So what a company like McKinsey does is they try and figure out why that is. So if we think about sales, there's two simple reasons or why revenues go down. Either sales went down or costs went up. Simple. The costs mm -hmm. in a company went up, revenues go down. If the sales went down, revenues go down. So what they do is they start exploring all of those different branches of the tree to figure out where the missing branch is, where's, where's the defect, and then they present that solution. So that's basically what it is in a nutshell. So these problems can vary. They can be things like, hey, Santiago, Santiago, should I go to the US next to expand my business or should I go to Germany? Why, why not? What are the pros and cons? Santiago, should I land to this product or this product? What do you think? So that's why I was obsessed with case competitions because the benefit of working in a field like that is you have access to very senior executives at a very young age. So mm. I, I started working in consulting when I was, what, 23? But I was talking to CEOs, which is kind of weird if you think about it. Mm. And what case competitions does is it trains you to speak to these people. We did a case once for Walmart four years ago the person who's giving the case wasn't a manager at Walmart. It was the senior vice president of Walmart Canada. So he's like sitting there in the judging panel and you're like 21 presenting this guy and trying to convince him that you're right. And it's, it's really fascinating. Trust me. Hmm. So then, cause I guess even more specifically, you go into like the presentation part of it. So like, does it, I guess, does it matter about the, content per se as long as you present it in a way or like i guess what's the the difference between like presenting it and researching it yeah no it's a good point so in case competition specifically what makes a winning team a winner is definitely the delivery but i'll explain why the reason is because since you're up against 13 other universities you're competing for gold five of those teams are probably going to have the right answer so the difference between a team that podiums, so that gets first, second, or third place, versus a team that doesn't, is how that solution is being communicated. So if team A comes up and says exactly what the judges wanted to hear, but they do it like this, uh, yeah, so this is our strategy, or better, because uh, they're scared, right? They're talking to like senior executives, like, uh, yeah, so this is what we think. But they're giving the right answer. They might get fourth place or fifth place, maybe even third place. But the team that comes in with the same solution, with the same slides almost, but they present it like this, we believe that innovation lies at the heart of everything that you do. Elon, when you started Tesla, you believed XXXXX, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Good afternoon to the board of directors of Tesla. Here we go. The way that we present it now, they go, wow, 
This team mm-hmm. has been working months on this thing, even if we only had a couple of hours to prepare it, but we need to present as if we've done it for a couple of months. So in that environment, essentially what I'm trying to tell you, Santiago, is I learned 40 years of communication experience at four, because that was my life, essentially. So I was just presenting almost every day, or I was coaching another team on how to present, and I was like the warlord of that entire program. So I was like <laughs> the craziest person who ever went through the program, pretty much. So yeah, that's the that's the spiel. So are you kind of improvising the presentation? I mean, obviously you prepare a little bit more, but like I guess after you get to a certain point, do you kind of just know the flow of it and just kind of input the formula to you to your presentation? Yeah, absolutely. I think a good way of looking at it is you find the formula that works for you after you do it a lot. So since case competitions are you're in a team of three people. What we do more than any other school usually is we practice a lot more. So every competition, we probably practiced 50 to 20 times on average. So in my case, I competed in 50 competitions and I probably practiced on average 10 times. So that's why I say, I always say that I present 500 times or I presented anyways. But in the context of really important case competitions, like once a year kind of stuff, and those types of presentation settings, the team like needs to bond, needs to build its chemistry, needs to understand a formula works for them. So me, I know my strengths and my strengths, I can sell anything to anyone, right? I can take Tesla and make them feel like I'm, even if they're not mm-hmm. sitting there, I make the, the judges feel like they're a part of the company, but I'm not the smartest guy in the block, right? I don't always know the right solution. I don't know the right numbers, but then you have my friend, Kevin, He's like really cold and introverted, always knows the solution, but doesn't know how to sell it. So I need to coach him on communication. So you figure out that little team chemistry in the same way on a sports team, you kind of figure it out as you go or a dance team, really. And then when you get to the final presentation, the actual competition, your execution is just perfect. Yeah. So getting to you specifically, what is Master Talk specifically? <laughs> Right. So, so I would say for me, Master Talk is, is basically my, my body of work. Uh, after I graduated from university, it's like kind of retiring from a sports game. You're kind of done. You can't really compete anymore. Mm-hmm. Can't go back to the sports game and play again <laughs> in the NBA. It's over. It's time for the new kids to replace you. So the same thing happened to me. You know, I got what I wanted. I got at the job. And I asked myself a different question now about life, especially after I retired my mother at a very young age. She said, what do I do now? I got all the goals I wanted. I was going to make senior executive before 30. I was on track to doing that. And I still am on track. I'm still there. But I just said, what what can I do more for the world? And what I found interesting from my case competition experience, because I was the guy coaching all of the new people who were entering that program at the time anyways, I started to develop a lot of ways of training people on communication that just didn't exist in the real world. So a lot of the advice we hear in, in I guess, normal society, because that weird niche is very weird where everyone's talking about presentations <laughs> all the time. But in the real world, like the, the world we're in right now, well, no one really pays as much attention presentation. For them, the only advice that they got in their life is, hey, if you're nervous, picture everyone in their underwear. You'll be just fine. Like, I'm just like, what? So this is, hmm. uh, this is not comfortable. <laughs> or things like, are you scared of public speaking? That's okay. That's normal. Just breathe, drink a glass of water. You'll be okay. I was like, that's not solving the core issue. So I found a lot of holes and a lot of people's logic, more specifically PhDs on the topic. And I just said, like, I'll give an easy one. A lot of these people, they start their presentations like this. Did you know, Santiago, that after death, (laughs) public speaking fear rampages society. All of us are scared. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's true, but kind of sit back and think about it for our goal is to inspire somebody for our goal is to say hey take a leap take a chance the last thing i'm going to do is compare public speaking to death so i have no clue why that keeps getting repeated over and over again seems pretty useless <laughs> and not helpful to anybody it's like if uh, i was trying to teach you how to swim and said did you know santiago that 10 percent of people who swam in the river were about to practice in died drowning you want to start practicing <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, Brendan, maybe the swimming thing isn't for me. Same thing. Yeah. So that's why I started Master. I had four months to kill, honestly, before I started working in corporate <laughs> and I had no money. So I just said, and I had nothing to do. So I just said, let me make a videos in my basement, literally right there. Mm-hmm. And my mom was saying, you work at IBM, Brendan. What are you doing in your basement? This is kind of weird. And I thought it was a stupid idea. But after six months, I realized it wasn't a stupid idea and I should probably take this more seriously. So that's basically the story. 
So how do you, I guess, take your knowledge of doing these presentations and then make it a quote unquote successful YouTube channel? Yeah, for sure. So, so the way that I kind of see this, and this is something you should all do with yourselves, is two parts. So there's two parts to doing something. One is courage, that Mark Andreessen says really well. This is, he's the guy who started the first internet browser, so I'm quoting him. The first side is courage. Like having the courage to start a podcast takes guts, right? Having the courage to start a YouTube channel takes guts. Having the courage to do anything takes guts. But the second part of this is what he calls genius. But genius isn't like Einstein. Genius, as, as per my definition, is the ability to be really ruthless to figure it out so that you can become in the top percentage of your industry. So it's one thing to work out 16 hours a day, but if you don't have the genes, if you don't have the drive, you don't have the intensity, you won't get drafted into a professional sports team. It just doesn't happen, right? The slots are too small. But if you have the combination of the right genes and the right way of doing things, then go ahead. So what I realized with myself is that I was pretty good at communication, but I was pretty bad on camera. But I also knew that through a lot of practice, I could figure it out. So basically what happened is I started making videos on the subject and I was terrible at creating content and teaching it. But because I just kept doing it every week, I got better and better and better. And because I just have a network that are some of the best presenters in the country, well, they weren't, be, they weren't afraid to kind of run me through a wall. They're like, this is garbage or garbage, try again. And I said, <laughs> okay. And then I did it again and again. And after a couple of months, probably six or seven months into MasterDog, Say, okay, I'm pretty good on camera now. Let me try and uh, uh, make this a product. Let me try and uh, sell coaching service. Let me try better, improve the production because I just kept doing it in my basement all the time. Luckily for me, because, you know, this is the importance of being nice. I, I don't know why people think world is zero, zero sum. If you're just a nice person, nice things are going to happen to you. I got lucky. One of my friends has been in the video business since he was 16. So I just said, can you do the videos for me? He's like, yeah, I'll give you 90% off. Let's just make this happen. <laughs> and then, yeah, because it's just my friend, right? So then my videos, like production kind of just blew off. And then after that, uh, you never looked back. Yeah. So how does the YouTube thing compare to, like, because you're presenting to, I guess, the void that is the massive internet, as opposed to presenting to these CEOs that have something that they want to hear from you. Yeah, very sharp question, man. Like, to be honest, I sucked. I hated being on camera for that very reason because I was very, it was really lonely. Like, you're alone mm. in your basement. There's nobody to talk to. There's nobody to impress, which I need. Like, as a competitor, it's like a, <laughs> when you're, it's not like an ego. Actually, it's a bit of an ego thing, but it's more in the sense of like you're holding yourself accountable to someone else. It's a lot easier to go for a run if your best friend is knocking on your door at 5 a.m. and saying, Santiago, it's time for a run. Like, let's go. Right. Same mm -hmm. thing with this. So that's why I sucked. I didn't like it. It was unfulfilling. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same ego and pride that I had presenting in front of CEO, <laughs> just knocking out of the park and everyone going, oh, my God. Right. You're like this amazing presenter. Now nah, that doesn't happen on camera when you're alone in your basement. But what does help is by realizing the impact you can make on video. So what's fascinating. One person came up to me and said this because I didn't want to start the channel, if I'm being honest. He came up to me and he said, do you have time to coach everybody? And I said, well, no. And he said, exactly. So if you want to get to a million people, what do you need to do? And I said, looks like I need to share the information. So it's about understanding the bigger reason of why you're doing it. And what also helped as a pro tip of content creators out there is I played it to my advantage. I kind of tricked the system where I actually have an audience that I present in front of when I record my videos. And the audience is my video guy. So for okay, me, it's yeah. not about presenting to the audience that is now, you know, a lot more than it used to be, but it's more about saying, I'm trying to impress Danny right now. I'm trying to impress him. I'm trying to show him that I'm the best. I'm trying to seek his validation just because that helps me as a speaker. It's good to have someone else say, oh, that was good or that was bad or try this. So I got a lot better on camera through that way. But the idea is uh, trick habits in your favor. You know, if you don't want to go for a run, then just put shoes next to your bed and put them on. And by the time you put them on, you'll probably not want to take them off and just go for the run. Like trick it in your system. Another cool trick that I do that I got from Brendan Bouchard is in your alarm system when you wake up, pick the three words that you stand for. So for me, that's impact, involvement, and importance. So every day I wake up and I say, did I make an impact in the world? Did I try to anyways? And if the answer is yes, then I win. 
Number two, is what I'm doing important? Is it of importance to other people? If I was making a YouTube channel on pranks, my opinion is no. Other prank channels would say yes, because they believe in making entertaining content that helps people laugh. Totally fine. But for me, that doesn't work. Number three, involvement. Am I in the dirt? Am I talking to everyone I can talk to? Am I getting in the, in the grind? Like, am I really in it? Or am I trying to outsource everything? No, I like being in the game. Number three. But what I do is I, I, I change the labels so that every time I open my alarm, I see the three words. Whereas it's kind of like trick. Like, don't, like one thing he says is common sense is never common practice. So always make sure you're implementing those tips. So that's something I do, for instance. So camera works in the same way. Trick yourself in the right way. Yeah. Uh, you kind of mentioned how you play with the system or trick the system. How do you use the like YouTube algorithm to kind of find what works? And because, I mean, obviously not everything is going to hit. You're going to have some things like, all right, three views. Yay. Or some stuff is going to have thousands of views. And how do you find what works? Everyone's got a different opinion on this. I'll give you mine. And one thing I really want to push for people is my advice only really applies to educational content because I don't really know anything about like pranks and like things like that. <laughs> but in my niche specifically, I don't care about the algorithm. If, a, if an algo jumps, I'll take it as a win. But chances are, unless you have 100K subs, you can't rely on the algo. I got lucky with one video. That's right. So every, so one video in particular, three daily speaking exercises, if you type public speaking exercise anywhere around the world, my video will type, will pop number one in the search engine. I got lucky with that. That was not, it, my video is good. Obviously the watch times are really good on that video, but I got lucky. I didn't plan for that. So my advice for people who want to be YouTubers is to never rely on the algorithm. The best way to get 10,000 followers is to talk to 10,000 people. You want to know the secret and how I got my first thousand followers? Well, I messaged 2,000 people, all of the network that I helped for four years. I said, look, I helped on communication. Can you please support me on this? Can you please subscribe? Can you please watch my videos, right? So for me, the content strategy is 99.1. Create 1% of the time, create way in advance. So I, I create my content years in advance, just so people know my strategy. And the other 99% of the time, I'm promoting I'm having conversations with people. I'm doing workshops for free. I'm giving free coaching in exchange for uh, introductions to important people that I can leverage to, to grow the following. I do podcasts pretty much all day, right? That kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I, I put a lot more emphasis on getting 10,000 people to watch that actually want to watch the content, right? So that they will share it to 10 people. Then, you know, that's how you grow a real following. Yeah, it does seem like the promotion is bigger than even the creation of the content or even the content itself. How do you, I guess, do you want to keep doing that yourself? Would you rather someone else do that? Or do you feel like that's kind of your responsibility to make that your promotion? Big mix of both, I would say. So everyone's different. So I'll give an example. Uh, someone like Graham Stephan is a very famous YouTuber on the platform. He talks a lot about real estate and finance. I have a lot of respect for his work and what he does. He doesn't promote at all. He's barely on any podcast, but his videos are awesome. He posts three times a week. Uh, they SEO really well. He makes a lot of money off of them because the CPM is really hard. A high it's CPM for those who don't know is like uh, every time you make a video on YouTube based on advertisers who want to be featured on your video, they pay a certain amount. But because this is a finance and real estate channel, a lot of people want to pay a lot of money to be on his channel. So he makes a lot of money from that. So because of that specific niche and his strategy, for him being on a podcast is like okay, it's more just I'm helping the other person. I'm just you know they want me on. I'm just adding value to them. But in my case, I don't like making YouTube videos. I actually find the process extremely stressful. So my strategy <laughs> is write the content five years in advance so I don't have to think about it. The, the one <laughs> thing I would hate is to post garbage. That's why I only post once a week. So every time I post, people watch, even if it's not the most exciting content in the world, it's still good. You know, I try and present posting the most entertaining way as possible. But people watch. They're loyal because they go, oh, wow, like, this is something I can learn from. But it's always new. So because I post once a week, I have a lot more time to promote. Whereas I think the key is to really understand who you are as a YouTuber. Like another example I give, I'm one of the few YouTubers on the platform who doesn't like video. Like I don't like the <laughs> video process. 
I, I like I don't like the jump like Casey Neistat is like a he loves his videos like he edits all of them himself he does all that stuff me like I hate that process I don't want to spend 10 hours of my day I would rather have conversations like this where that are more fun I get to actually see you so I can see the yeah. impact I know you watched a video so I'm just like oh okay <laughs> cool so I can have a conversation even if seven people are watching I don't care like it's just fun to have cool conversations so everyone's got their thing I think the number one thing I want to push here is you pick the strategy that is most sustainable to you like I want to be in a position where I can create a year in advance. And if I want to take three months off, I can do that. Someone like Graham can't do that because he's posting three times a week, but he makes a lot more money than me. So you have to figure out that in between that works for you. Yeah. I guess in a way, the promotion part is kind of still kind of flexing that presentation muscle for you. So uh, you is it. there, I don't know if there's something like... I guess I'll be upfront about it. Are you lying in your presentations? <laughs> Whenever you're presenting something that you, let's say, may not necessarily believe in or just kind of trying to find uh, what the person will like, is there kind of a dishonesty or do you just kind of work with whatever it is that you're given? Hmm. In the context of case competitions, I, I don't think, I think deception is a better word. I don't think it's really lying. <laughs> I think it's more about, I'll give an example. So let's say you get a case on Nike. Do I know Phil Knight? Of course not. For those who don't know, Phil Knight's the founder of Nike. But am I going to present as if I'm really excited to be there? Absolutely, right? Because they're, and the reason I do this, I, I kind of justify it a different way. It, to some people that could be seen as deception. The way that I spin it, that is just as authentic in my opinion, is those judges could be spending and other schools are different other school this is gonna be fun for you so other schools go you know do your best those judges are here to help you the judges are here to be there for you uh whatever happens happens what i tell my teams is i say these judges make half a million dollars a year they make 250k a year they are very busy individuals and they're spending eight hours of their day listening to people like you are you going to present garbage to them are you going to go up there and waste their time no you're going to go up there and make them say, wow, this team was worth spending all of those seven hours listening to a bunch of crap the whole day. <laughs> so it's more, so the way that I approach public speaking, it's less to do with deception. It's more about empathy. And the empathy is saying to the judge, I want to give you a good show because you're taking time of your busy schedule to listen to me today. So I'm going to make sure that when I walk out of that room, you desperately want to give me a job. That is what I tell everyone I coach. And in that frame of mind, it doesn't seem deception anymore. So I can walk into a presentation and say, when you started Nike, it's a, it's a show, right? It's time to give yeah. the best show of your life. Same thing with my public speaking videos, right? Are there days I don't want to film? Absolutely. Like, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, it's so hard. Why do I do it? <laughs> because I always tell myself that if I get it right, if I get it perfect with the right emotion and I'm authentic and I'm excited and I do it one time, I never have to do it again. I can just share yeah. it forever. And so that's the key. It's all about being empathetic to the audience who speak. That's how you kind of get rid of the deception piece to it. Yeah. What is kind of one of the nitty gritty things in what you do that you feel like people may not be able to or may not see very often and you're very proud of and it's this very specific thing and you're like, I know that I can do this little thing very well. Yeah, I think, I think one thing that a lot of the case people give me credit for that's very not well known, so I'm glad you asked the question, is I'm very, I'm very detailed. And by detailed, I'm obsessively detailed. So one, <laughs> one example I give to a lot of the students I coached back in the day is I gave a specific piece of advice on how to build your introductions. Because most people start like this. That's why they lose a lot of points and they're not very engaging. Hi, my name is Santiago. This is Brendan. Let's talk about Nike in the future. Now I'll say that's going to get you like seventh place. Like that is not how you differentiate yourself from the teams. Or you're not, you're not setting yourself up to win, right? Basically. Whereas what I do is I say the gold is in the company history. So a lot of people, when they read a case, they usually jump over the company history because there's no, there's nothing to learn. It's more just like, okay, this is what we did before, but let's focus on today. But the reason I pay a lot of attention to company history is because I can pull 
a lot of insights on how the company started or how it was founded, whether it's a nonprofit or anything. And I can re-spit that back. So for example, if I'm reading a Tesla case and I see Elon struggles and how he's building all these companies, I can talk about those struggles in the intro. Instead of starting with, hi, Elon, my name is Brendan, I could say. <laughs> Through all of the ups and downs of how you built Tesla, Elon, I think the one thing that stood out to me is this idea of resilience. This idea, anyways, I don't want to push on too much. But here, the thing is, I'm obsessive. Like, I am insane. Any presentation is never good enough for me. And that's why it forced me, which is a great thing for, I guess, the public, now that the Master Talk videos are out for people, which wasn't the intention at the beginning. But it forced me to be the best speaker in the room, always. Since I was the leader, if I wasn't on my A game, people would be like, well, I'm just going to present like I do usually in my classes. But when I show up for a presentation, I'm giving you criticism, especially on your intros and the way you pitch. You're going to listen because you're going to say, well, I want to win too. If I'm, if I'm putting in 20, like just to give you an idea of how crazy this program is. Anyone in a final round interview that tells me that they want to take holidays with their family, like Christmas or stuff, don't, doesn't get in the program. I immediately cancel hmm. them out. The reason is because the competition is the first week of January. So you spend like four months practicing. You know, you don't get Christmas to your family. You can take one day and then you're going to go back and practice. And people still want to do the program because they know what it gives them. And I haven't had, I haven't seen my family in three years. Like I haven't spent family. For that. And now I'm due because I graduated. It's a lot of fun talking to my family. But the point <laughs> that I'm driving is I think the thing that people don't realize or notice is uh, I'm, I'm crazy. Like, I'm really insane. Like, isn't it bizarre how that, how do I know so much about public speaking at the age of 22? I'm 24 now. But like, how does that even make sense? Right? It's because I was insane. It's because I did all of those things. And it's the details that count for sure. Yeah. What is, I guess, the biggest piece of advice you would say, or not even the biggest, the most common thing that you find yourself telling people as you're coaching their presentations and being like, this is crap, please improve this or, or whatever it might be. Just what's the thing that you're always saying? Yeah. So, so people don't really know how to practice presentations, Santiago. So let me give you an example here. And it's more of a question to you. Think about jigsaw puzzles. You know, those puzzles, there's like thousands of pieces to try and put them together. So if I asked you, if you were doing this puzzle with me or your family or whoever you want, which pieces would you start with first? The edge pieces. Why? Because they're the easiest to identify. Exactly. But we don't do that in public speaking. So in public speaking, what happens is we have a presentation, right? In two days, we both need to give a presentation. So what do we do? We say, what content we want to put in this thing? We start shoving a bunch of content, shoving, 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 shoving. Then it's Friday. Then we get to our last slide. We go, uh, yeah, so I guess I'm done. Thanks. <laughs> Whereas we need to start treating public speaking more like a puzzle. We need to start by practicing our introduction like crazy. Like this is what I do with people. I make them do introductions 20 times, 25 times, 30 times, just the intro. So every day they wake up, they do the intro. They do that for the month. That introduction will be the best intro they ever get in their lives. But I do the same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Not a great movie. Right? <laughs> But sure. what a lot of people, when they conclude, they kind of just say, okay, let's summarize what we talked about. That's probably the most exciting thing you can do. And I'm obviously very sarcastic. Talk about the vision state. Talk about a world and where all of your ideas have been implemented. So that's why. So do the same thing. 20, 30 times the conclusion. Now what that's done is that's given you a huge ego boost. You look at your intros, your conclusion, you're like, I'm the best speaker on the planet. And then you tackle the content. People don't do it in that order. They do content, content, content. Oh, I should probably think about my introduction too late. <laughs> the presentation's over. So that's yeah. probably the most common thing. Sure. What advice do you have for people that want to be doing what you're doing? Hmm. So I want to make sure I nail this question. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean like doing something that's unique to me? Or do you mean being a public speaker and getting paid for it? Or both? The latter. <laughs> uh, what does latter mean? Is that the first or the second? Uh, the second one. Okay, being a public speaker and getting paid for it. Okay. Yes. So for advice on people to go pro, there's a couple of things you want to do. So the first one is you need to understand that people won't pay for a speech unless there's something in it for them. So that means if you want to talk about your dogs, that's cool. You can only do that. But it's not something people will pay you to do because you're mm -hmm. not solving a problem for them. So think about, as you can probably guess, my keynotes 
I charge a hefty fee. Why? Because communication is something people want to pay for. Because if they spend, I don't know, I'm throwing a number, a thousand dollars. It's a bit more than that. Let's just say it's a thousand, right? The thing is conversation. Well, if, if you if you become a 10x better communicator, what's that worth to you? It's worth tens of thousands of dollars, right? Over the long term of your life. So people will pay me a hefty fee because of the topic. But if I came up to you as a communication expert, I said, you want to talk about dogs? I said, sure, but don't expect me to pay you for that. So the key sure. is, think about the topic that you solve for somebody else. What is the pain point that you solve for someone else? The only exception to that rule is if you're a celebrity or you have a strong personal brand. So if you want to talk about slime, but you have a YouTube channel that has 500,000 subscribers, people will pay you a lot of money to come give that talk on slime because they'll make more than 5,000 because your fans will come and pay for tickets to go see you, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that personal brand, you actually need to present something very specific. Second thing that isn't very obvious is be willing to give it 200 times for free. Yeah. If you're not willing to do the, the same speech, this is what I want to add. I've mm -hmm. presented as of this recording over a thousand times, probably as of, as of today. And half of those times, or rather all the times after I graduated from uni was the same presentation. I've given the yeah. same keynote probably four or 500 times now. And I only started getting paid for it recently. And there's still times that I give it for free. You know, it's like a nonprofit or something, you know, to give back. Mm -hmm. but, you know, the company brings me, I charge them pretty happy to fee for that keynote. So, so the reason why I want, I want people to think about this is the following. Being a professional speaker isn't as fun as you think it is. You know, the glitz and the glamour is great. You get to travel the world. People look up to you. People want to take pictures with you, which is very humbling, by the way. This happens the first Because <laughs> I'm not really famous, right? I got like what, a couple thousand subscribers. It's not that big of a deal. But it's very humbling. And that's great. And it fulfills me quite a bit. But uh, most people don't make it there because they're not willing to do the same thing 50 to 100 times, right? Just, just to give people an idea. Today, as of now, this recording, to, this is probably my eighth interview of the day. So I'm, yeah. right. So it's like, I'm intense, like, I, but I repeat the same story over and over again, because that's what it takes to become a brand. That's what it takes to share an idea that actually matters. If you keep switching up your stuff, you don't get anywhere. So that would be my advice. And the third one, of course, is build a personal brand. If you're not willing to deliver free content for people, don't expect to be paid for your time. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Now, since you've been delivering the same answers this whole time, hopefully all of these questions are going to be a little bit more challenging and maybe not quite as easily regurgitated. So these are very what is the actually. role what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life? Mm, I love that. That's great. And by the way, kudos to you. Actually, most of your questions you've asked me have actually never been asked before, so that's great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so, so spirituality... Well, actually, it's... Uh, sorry, the, that makes me question other people interviewing you because this is just my genuine curiosity. What's wrong with people? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, for sure, absolutely. But uh, just to add on that, it's more in the sense of the specificity of your questions are interesting. Hmm. So let's say you, you don't just say, how do we engage an audience? You go, well, in this case competition situation you're in, what did you do there? Right? That People don't really dive that level but they still ask relevant questions that's what i mean but it is interesting nonetheless. Okay. spirituality and religion so the way that i that i see spiritual and religion is and i like sam harris's point of view on this not the atheism point where everyone should not have a religion <laughs> that that's something i want to push here because i always like to stay neutral here but the thing i want to push is it doesn't really matter if you're religious or not you still need community and i think that's something i've learned over time and without community as human beings, we are lost, right? That's what I find interesting about a lot of people who go to churches. I ask them a lot, why, why do you go? Uh, they don't actually say it's for God. They say it because they get to see everyone else at, yeah. uh, at the church. And I, I think that's awesome, right? And a lot of my friends are from different faiths and different beliefs, and I, and I don't have a preference for any of them, really. It's really just, you know, everyone's happy, and as long as everyone's a great human being, be that. But I think in my own personal journey, what I learned is spirituality is important for everybody. If you don't, if somebody else isn't giving you the answers to your life, you need to learn to figure them out. And the best way of figuring them out is finding your own community. So for me personally, you know, I found my community at personal development events. Think of it like Tony Robbins events, Lewis Howe's events. I would, I spend a lot of money every year, not that much money, it's actually not that expensive, to fly out to meet people who are like me. 
purpose-driven. We sing Kumbaya for three days. We talk about our <laughs> fantasies. We talk about weird stuff that we would never talk about in the public eye. Like, I won't be doing this podcast. Not kidding. Ask me anything. But uh, <laughs> the point that I'm driving is uh, find your people. Find your tribe and ask them the stuff. So, for example, uh, a lot of people say, do you do yoga, uh, wellness, uh, meditation? What do you think of all that stuff? I always say there's a much important habit that nobody talks about that people need to that leads to all of the yogurt and the stuff you're supposed to do. And the habit is ask yourself a hard question every day. What are you pretending not to know? If you had all the money in the world, how would you spend your time? Isn't it odd that we're all saving up for 65, but Chadwick Boseman, who is in Black Panther, died at 43, and Kobe Bryant, who had all the money in the world, couldn't save himself from death, and Steve Jobs died at 56. Why aren't we asking these questions? Because it's through those questions that arrives at the answers that we're looking for, which is most people aren't willing to ask. Beautiful. So that means that the questions that I'm asking people uh, hopefully helps them tackle those things a little bit sooner. (laughs) (laughs) So then, what is your definition of God? Man, you're asking me really political stuff. I mean, controversial stuff. Uh, Let me see. I didn't realize God was political. No, no, no. I usually don't like to get into religion, but I'm happy to comment on it anyways because I appreciate the question. So so the the way that I think about it is I think... God is what you make it to be. So in the sense of, for me, God is more of an energy, not necessarily a thing that I believe in or a person, but rather um, an energy in how I should be living my life. So in this idea that, for me, my, my happiness, my fulfillment comes from doing great things. So if I'm, if I'm like spending time with my family, which is great, I love my family, but if this is all I'm doing, I'll be miserable. And that doesn't apply for everybody. And I'll give you an analogy that kind of explains this. There's this great documentary I recommend everyone watch. It's called Free Solo. It's about this guy named Alex Honold who, who climbed this wall called El Capitan. But something I want to push here, I know you've probably watched it, but for the audience, free soloing means you're climbing a wall without any rope. So if you make a mistake, you just die. Right? So it's really <laughs> fascinating. And what he said in the documentary, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. He said the following, I'll impersonate him a bit here. He said, me and my girlfriend, we view happiness in different ways. She sees it as spending time with family, going shopping, buying a house, being comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the way that I derive my happiness is by doing great things. For nine out of 10 of those years, I did not want to climb that wall. Every time I looked at LCAP, I was scared to death, didn't want to do it. But in that last year, I looked at that wall and I said, what if I did accomplish it? What would happen? How would my life change? What he said that was fascinating is what lies at the other side of the wall. Other kids would grow up and want to climb a bigger wall. And I found that so bizarre. Most people would find that insane, (laughs) whereas I understood what he meant. It's this whole idea of what MJ would have been, what Michael Jordan would have been if he watched his own documentary when he was 15. Hmm. And I'm here to think about that. The crazy people like me, probably you, think about that. This idea of if MJ watched MJ, what would MJ actually have been? He actually would have been a lot Mm -hmm. bigger. This whole idea of the four-minute mile, once it's breached, someone's going to go after three minutes. right? So it's this idea of optimizing the human experience. So for me, that is God. It's this idea of pulling energy that doesn't really make sense from a perspective, like the, there's not really a, a purpose to this. It's more just like it excites me, it brings me energy, and it allows me to have an interesting human experience while I'm still here. So that's how I think about it. That's awesome. <laughs> what is free will and do you believe in it? Hmm. And since you had mentioned Sam Harris, I imagine you might have thought about this at least. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've watched a, I haven't watched this podcast that much, but I've listened to a couple of interviews that he's a part of. More, more of the soft ones, not the ones where he starts debating and talking about this <laughs> controversial stuff. But the, the idea with Sam that I appreciate is uh, I, I like his, his, the way that he thinks. He's very level-headed. But the idea of, uh, of free will that I want to push here is there's always parts of life that you can control and parts that you can't. So I think anyone that thinks they're truly free and as a whole is probably wrong in the sense that There's always a component. For example, society conditions us to do the following, at least in American slash Canadian culture. Get married before 35, uh, get a house, 
buy a house more specifically, have two and a half kids, not two, not two, <laughs> two and a half, right? And usually you probably want a white picket fence. If you don't, no one's going <laughs> to bother you with it, but it's generally accepted or appreciated that you have one. Always buy new <laughs> things. If you have a phone that's three years old, not something you should be doing. So in some ways, in some circumstances, that's very hard to break through. Uh, that's kind of how I think about free will, not in the way that I kind of have control over my life, but in how most human beings think of it. I don't think most people are free, but I think that freedom is relative. So let's say if you're in North Korea, you know, you definitely don't have the, the same free will as you would if you were in the States or if you're in Canada. But the other side of the equation that I think is more useful for people here is what are you going to do with the limited freedoms that you do have? which are a lot more relative to the rest of the human population currently. So the way that I see it, there's a lot of stuff that I couldn't control about my life. I just happened to be born in a first world country. My dad immigrated five years and he almost didn't even make the immigration. So that, that one decision could have literally changed the course of my life. So I ended up born in a city where it just so happened that the university I went to had the world's largest case competition program ever. Just so happened, I was born in 1996, case competition started becoming popularized in the early 2000s. And it just so happened, I lived in a time period of history where I'm able to share knowledge that exists forever where the cost of production is zero. There's a lot of things I couldn't control. But the limited freedoms that I have, what am I going to do with that? And that maximizes my human potential. So short answer to the question, I don't think we're all truly free, but I think that if we decide to make the best with the freedoms we do have, we can live a fulfilled and happy life. Awesome. <laughs> Even though I don't think you've answered that question before, you still presented that in a way that like, it's really satisfying. So you're good at your job. So <laughs> <laughs> I try to be, man. Try to be. What happens when we die? Hmm. I'll, I'll answer this a bit differently. In, mm. in business, we learn. This is the only advice that really matters, at least if you're interested in being an entrepreneur. Is that you should, or life, honestly, always prepare for worst case scenarios. My my opinion, this is, this is kind of a general impression that I have. Anyone who thinks they're truly right about anything, it's probably wrong and not very intelligent. That's my that's my POV on things, point of view, which is POV. <laughs> so for me, I'm, I, I can't just go on a podcast and say, nothing's going to happen after you die. What do I know? There's so It's kind of like, I forgot the, the scientific term for this, but the idea to simplify it for people is that geniuses realize that the more that they know, the more they realize they actually don't know. So for me, I'm probably wrong about 99% of things in life, but there's three to five things I'm pretty sure is correct, almost to 100% degree, so I'm betting my life on them. So one of those examples is master talk. I actually think this is going to be useful, and so I, I, I do as much research as possible, even if I'm 100% sure I do it. So what's my opinion on this whole death situation? I prepare for a worst-case scenario. So I'm living with the assumption that there is nothing after death. If there is, and they don't want to bring me to heaven, well, tough luck for them. I did pretty well for myself. So like, come on, <laughs> right? So I'm living with the assumption that there is nothing. So because I'm living with that assumption, it forces me to take action today. Because I think the issue, well, not really the issue, but the, the loss, right? It's kind of this whole idea that the, the richest place in the world is the graveyard, where a lot of ideas that should have been implemented haven't been because of some insecurity or fear. So I think the, the idea for my life is with the assumption that there is nothing after, or rather, I actually take this to the next level. I actually think I'm going to die in 15 years. I, do, I, I call it uh, the admirer timer. So uh, hmm. this is a side note that, that I would love to add here to the conversation. Please. So a lot of people are very desensitized to this idea of death. Right? They go, death is important, but I'm going to forget it as if it doesn't exist. <laughs> and a lot of us in our age group, 20s, early 30s, do that very well because we're young. We think we're going to live forever, even if that's a, a very nonsensical way of looking at life. So the way that you fix this, it's dark, but it's effective, is you pick someone you admire deeply to your own human experience, someone you really admire that died at a really young age, and you assume that you're going to die on the same day they did. This is what I call the admirer timer. So the person I've selected for this is Kobe Bryant, which is odd for someone to say because I don't watch sports or care about sports. But the reason, and I'm happy to share this, the reason I picked Kobe is because I really admire the crap out of him. He had so much more to life to give 
and had nothing to do with basketball, actually. He was starting this media company and this podcast called The Punies. And I, I knew, because I follow him a lot, a lot of his podcasts and what he was doing, he was going to make a much bigger impact in the world that had nothing to do with basketball. He's going to create this huge media production company, tell amazing stories, and get a lot of leaders, future leaders, right, to to develop growth mindsets. And I knew he was on the right track. He won an Oscar one year into doing this thing. This guy's committed and he <laughs> died. And I was depressed for a week. I just sat there and I was like, crap. Like, so I just find life so unfair, right? There, there's people who are like 60 who like abuse children and do bad things. Someone like him, and he's had his mistakes in his life. I'm not saying this guy's perfect, no one's perfect. But he was doing some important stuff. I, I think I think we could have given him five more years. He would have done some pretty important stuff that only could he could have done. But that's a, it's, it's a constant reminder for me to always play full out every single day, to stay up until 11 to do a podcast, or do whatever it takes to maximize and optimize my human potential. So the short answer is by implementing an, an, an admirer timer, it forces me to keep moving very quickly. That's why I started taking action at such a young age. Once again, started Mass Track at 22, which makes no sense because most of my competitors in the space have PhDs in the subject. I didn't want to wake. I didn't want to wait because I was scared that I was going to die in five years. I don't have a disease or anything, but just in case. So that when I die, the knowledge doesn't die with me. That's like my biggest fear right now in life. That's why I'm always like creating my content like five years in advance and it's crazy shit. So the point is, <laughs> we're up, I work with the worst case scenario. I assume I'm going to die, that there's nothing after this. So I'm just going to play full out while I still can. Heck yeah. That's really inspiring, at least to me. So <laughs> I don't know if other people would be like, gosh, that's dark. But I, yeah. I'm assuming that you're the only person who listens to your own podcast. So, <laughs> so that matters to me. So that, I appreciate it, man. I do listen to my own podcast, but mostly to see like quality controls. How did I do? Uh, <laughs> how do you determine what good behavior is? Very subjective answer for sure. Like many of the stuff I've said today, but if I had to give a concrete way of being, I think some easy to general things we can all agree on, is just be nice to people. Like I don't, like I'm a very cocky person. Okay, I'm very upfront about it, very confident. I think I can take over the world at public speaking and blah, 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 blah. But it's this weird dichotomy where I don't disrespect other people. Like if somebody is, uh, like I don't like, uh, like disrespecting people, like for example, like when I when I rescheduled this thing with you, you know, I, I showed appreciate. I was like, thank you for doing that. You didn't have to. I really appreciate that. Like things like that, right? I don't like disrespecting other people. So I think the idea is just being kind. I think is really important. And I know we we talk about this a lot, but I think the reason is you don't know that little thing that could change somebody and how they think about it. I'll give you a perfect example with me. I was four months into master. I thought it was a stupid idea. Honestly, I was just like making videos in my basement. What the hell am I doing? This kid that had, came from nothing, had factory work. I'm supposed to be the, 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 the person that some energy called upon to democratize. The, I was supposed to be the next Dale Carnegie. Me? I'm sitting on a mattress, dude. Like, what the hell? That makes no sense. Then there was this woman named Nadia, a good friend of mine. She came up to me one day. We were just chit-chatting. She was in the case program. So we were just, you know, having, you know, like dinner or something. And she looked at me and she said, Brendan, I forgot to tell you, but I've been watching all of your videos. And Nadia doesn't lie to me. She's a really nice person. She's not that kind of person. But Latina, she doesn't like mess around. She tells you the truth. And I was like, really, Nadia? I was like, why, why are you watching all that stuff? It's garbage. I haven't said it's garbage. It's like, a, like I'm in my phone. Like, it's so bad. And if you don't believe me, watch my old stuff. But it's because it's still up. And she said, no, 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 actually, like, and this is, and for her, it meant a lot to me because she too went through me yelling at her and the coaching and all that stuff. She said, no, 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 your stuff's useful. Like you should keep doing this. If it wasn't for her. She never told me that little thing. She probably forgot, by the way, I'm going to tell her that after Master Talks becomes successful <laughs> and I, you know, hit this, the milestones I did. That little comment changed my life. That little thing made me go, if Nadia thinks this is worth doing, this is probably worth doing. Same thing with my video guy, Danny. He watched my first video. It was like, it was horseshit. My first video was garbage. So bad. He looked at me. He's like, I think you got chops. I don't know if he was lying or not, but <laughs> I choose to believe it. He meant it. And then he became my my video guy later on when I took it more seriously. But obviously he had no, no he never knew I was going to take this seriously. And I didn't think so either. But I think good behavior for me is just doing, just being nice. 
Uh, I'm not going to say things like don't lie because you got to lie in certain circumstances, though I want to elaborate on those circumstances. But I think the key <laughs> is being kind is one thing. The other thing is ideally, if possible, do something unique with your life. This doesn't apply for everybody, but for the people that are listening to the show, maybe that applies to you, is if you have something unique to share, and this is not a YouTube channel, this is a painting that you could have painted. This is a, a girl you could have asked out. This could have been a, a pizza place you could have started. I think life is too short to just play by everyone else's rules. And the reason I, I, I deem that as good behavior, because I don't see achievement as good behavior. I see doing the things you want to do as good behavior because it helps you in the long run. And let me explain why. If you decide not to do those things, it'll actually, you'll actually end up presenting everyone else around you. There's this great video I was watching the other day. He said, uh, Patrick with David from uh, Valuetainment, so I'm quoting him. He said, why are grumpy men grumpy? And I was like, that's a good question I ever asked. Him. Why are grumpy men grumpy? And he said, though it's not scientifically based, I just choose to believe it, is, <laughs> well, they didn't, they didn't go after what they wanted. And what they wanted isn't necessarily a company. Could have been like being a painter. You know, they listen to their dad or their mom. Now they're just grumpy. They're just sad people because they just didn't want to do what they did. And that's not good behavior, in my opinion, anyways. So the way that I see it is be kind to people, simple, do a couple, hold the door for some people, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, like somebody's struggling. Like I massaged my mom's feet today. Like it's just little things, right? You know, just things that uh, you don't really take credit for that you just do. And uh, the other thing is just to, uh, you know, add value if you can. Yeah. So I think I'm going to keep going in order of my questions, but I'm going to like split it so that we can go into the second one because I still want to hear all of your answers for some of these. Absolutely. So, um, but I'm just looking at the time. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> how do we reduce the division? I usually ask this question with a political context, but it generally seems to be with a more like more like. How do you convince other people to care about other people? Very good. Uh, so, so I have a couple of theories on this that I'm going to quote a lot of people that I look up to. So one is the Seth Godin theory. So how he sees the world is he thinks, and I agree with him, everything is culture. So I'll give you a crazy example to demonstrate this that he gave. So in India, he does work with this water charity that I forgot the name. And basically, they were selling water for nothing, like clean water. This is the first time this community was getting clean water. But what was fascinating, and everyone could afford it, 20% of the families still didn't buy the water. Seth was going crazy. He was an Indian. He's like, how in the world do you think, how, how could you ever give dirty water to your kids when the water's right there? It's like practically free. You got to pay a little bit of money, but then it's, it's done. It's, I mean, it's the health of your children. The reason they did it was because of culture. So how did they fix it? It was really fascinating. What they did was they they went into kids uh, presentations they went into high schools the water charity went to high schools started talking about the difference between clean and dirty water making them taste both and what the children did is they went back to their parents and they said why do you give me dirty water they changed <laughs> not because of the health benefit they changed because of culture because they didn't want their kid to make them feel as if they were a useless parent and I find that so, so, so interesting. In the same way that we all value, hmm, what's, what's a good example here? Uh, why do we all watch The Bachelor? Like all these reality <laughs> TV shows? Because everyone else does. Why are, for most people, anyways, why are we Democrats? Because everyone else around us is. Why is everyone Republican? Because everyone else is around us. It's like this fascinating thing where most of the decisions that we make, going back to free will, were actually made by other people. There's this great philosopher, uh, one of the greatest thinkers in my that I've known to love and enjoy is a guy named Peter Thiel. He's the founder of PayPal. And one philosopher he looks up to is a guy named René Girard. He's a French guy. And he, says, he has a theory called mimetic theory. So basically what he says is that human beings only do things because other human beings want those things. Human beings desire things because everyone else just desires it. And I found that so interesting. The reason I, I think this, this plays well to division and all that stuff is changing the story, changing the culture and how we perceive a certain thing. And I'll give you another example here that I actually haven't said too much publicly, but I think could be interesting. 
once again, that is not scientifically based. So I'm not responsible for what I'm saying. But it is <laughs> gay marriage is a good example. Isn't it fascinating how quickly that problem got solved? Like in the 1990s, like if you if you told if, you know t- telling people they were gay was an insult, but then 30 years later, all of a sudden, gay marriage was legalized in all the states. What happened there? I've always been fascinated with it. It's a, obviously a great thing, but the, the thing I'm thinking about is how did that happen so quickly? The way that I see that is because we have to remember that problems get solved through the changes in culture in our society, not through anything else. So what happened was simple. The generation before us, generally speaking, grew up with either one ethnicity. So your parents immigrate from, I'm going to be racist here, like Mexico or some country or me. I My parents immigrate from Sri Lanka. So they grew up with a bunch of Sri Lankans and just Sri Lankans. So when they see white people or different colors or different ways of sexuality or being, they get intimidated. They think they're like the enemy. But what's fascinating is in our generation, it was the first generation where what, we, what the U.S. calls the melting pot. Not from a direct point of view, what they wanted the melting pot to be, but rather a bunch of ethnicities starting to interact with each other at a very young age, which made us a lot more open-minded. So even if we are not, or at least in my case, I am not a homosexual, I know someone who is, and I'm very good friends with someone who is, and this happened in mass. So you have a lot of people who are just like, hey, wait a minute, why are we hating on gay people? They're all pretty nice folks. There's a lot of celebrities that we admire, culture, going back to culture once again, right? That, that also love, you know, are great people. They're not bad people. So what, what is this stigma here? So then one person starts a match, throws it and says, hey, we need to legalize gay marriage. And then all of us raise our hand and say, that's true. And then all of the politicians who are against gay marriage all of a sudden have to be for gay marriage. <laughs> or else they don't get reelected. Yeah. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is a good example of the governor of California at the time, anyways, got a lot of hate for being against gay marriage. Well, he got pushed out. Right. So it's what I find fascinating about division, one side is culture. That's what I want to talk about. So don't think about what problems you want to solve. Ask yourself instead, what are the world's easiest problem to solve that you can solve in your lifetime? I think that's a more healthy conversation that doesn't cripple mm-hmm. you. Right. Because if you want to fight for climate change, it's great. You know, if you want to do that, you know, I'm happy for you. But it's also very complicated. You know, like if, if you don't thrift all your clothes, you suddenly become a hypocrite for the own problem you're solving. <laughs> right? so it's, it's weird. Yeah. It's, it, it's very um, disarming. It's very uh, it's it's very, how do I say, it's discouraging. Right. It's like you don't want to do anything. The other side that I want to point out, and very few humans have the skill, is this idea of understanding all perspectives. Most humans, what they do is they whatever they believe, they just tend to see it as the truth. So if I'm a Democrat, I'm going to say I'm a Democrat. If you're a Republican, Santiago, I hate you. <laughs> Reverse is also true. If I'm Republican, you're a Democrat, I hate you. But what we're not doing enough is we're not sitting down and just having conversations with each other and asking open-ended questions. Santiago, why do you believe what you believe? In the same way you're doing with me. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe this? If we started doing that, we'd have a lot less problems in society. It's like this whole yeah. idea, like if you're for or against abortion, isn't the issue, right? The issue is, are you willing to listen to the other side? There's a reason why people are for abortion and they're all against, are they all bad people? How could that even be possible statistically? Mm-hmm. They all have families, they all have <laughs> passions. They all have the same hobby. They all watch Netflix, right? It's like we all watch the same shows. Why are we so divided? And there's a great book that I can recommend for you since we're kind of having an informal discussion. Uh, this is a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He wrote this book called The Righteous Mind. This is basically I've read it. Oh, you have <laughs> excellent. So for those who don't know, it's basically a book that where he talks about why good people are divided, about religion and politics and stuff. So I think the best way of solving for division is coming together on problems we can all agree on. That's why in my lifetime, I'm only focused on solving two problems. One is communication. There's nobody who's going to come up to me, Santiago, and say, I hate you. I'm against you. You shouldn't be solving public speaking for the world. I want to finish you, right? Versus, sure. going to get a little more controversial. If we try to solve for human trafficking, which is horrifying, it's also very difficult because you have the mafia who's against you. You have people with arms who are against you. You have really smart people who are also really bad people. And you don't know where the humans are located, how many they are missing, et cetera. It's a very difficult thing to solve. So my advice to people when you think about division is focus on one or two things you know you can knock out in your lifetime. If everyone did that, 
the world would be a hundred times better than where it currently is right now. So for me, those two problems are simple. Public speaking and the water crisis. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. I don't care if you're a nihilist. I don't care who, who, who what, where. You're all going to agree, 99% of us anyways, are going to agree that every human being should have a clean glass of water to drink. And it's disgusting that 10% of us are drinking brown water every day. I should probably do something about that. But if we all had that mentality, how do we solve the easiest problem? The water crisis wouldn't even exist, right? And that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put the last question here and then we'll, you know, divide it. But cake or pie? <laughs> uh, definitely pie. But if I'm being honest, neither because I'm a pretty health freak. So I only cheat once every <laughs> two weeks. And when I cheat, it's okay. to eat junk food. So uh, like burgers and shit. So, so uh, not either. Yeah. But if I had to pick pie for sure. What is best pie? Kind of corollary to that question. <sighs> Probably apple pie. <laughs> probably apple pie like nice freshly baked like those those uh those apple ciders at mcdonald's uh what did they call the apple turnovers apple uh mm-hmm. something yeah yeah i i don't eat mcd's i haven't had mcd's in four years but like that that like that thing i i, I eat <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah heck yeah it's <laughs> pretty good Brendan, thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can people find you and your things? Of course. Uh, so clearly, if you're if you're listening for this type of conversation, I would just rewatch this. But if you want to listen to public <laughs> speaking information, stuff like that, or or just life tips on my Instagram, you can check out my YouTube channel, which is Master Talk in One Word, or you can follow me on Instagram, which is Master Your Talk. Awesome. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with PowerCycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, and buy my music, because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are, love never fails, it's going to be okay, I might be wrong. <laughs>